Around the Rock Discourse NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? Is that a mustache you're working on there? What am I looking you know what? at? What? It's not. Uh, as you know, I was a little under the weather this week. Wasn't, uh, you know, didn't go into the office the couple times I wanted to and, and haven't left my uh, my condo much. So haven't shaved this. Haven't shaved since Monday when I had to shoot this week's Unfiltered. And uh, as you also know, I have quite the baby face. Don't really grow. <laughs> can't really grow much facial hair. So when I don't shave for four days, the majority of the facial hair comes in in the mustache region so it looks like november over here but it is very much mid or late march yeah i was i was getting confused there for a second i I thought my facial hair grew in patchy but my god sir Mm -hmm. great to see your face regardless glad you're (laughs) glad you're feeling better i am feeling better yeah my voice is going to sound a lot better on this podcast than it does on this week's unfiltered i think i'm very nasally unfiltered uh you want to talk some ball (laughs) i guess so Uh, All right. The purpose of today's episode is we wanted to go through the East playoff picture a little bit and the teams in it because we both felt we haven't really given it much attention. I feel like we've talked West playoff teams recently. You know, we've done a lot kind of post deadline related stuff, but we haven't really dug into the East in a while. So we're going to do that today. But quickly off the top, we do have to mention a couple Western Conference stories. One. Because, of course, Clippers, I kind of want to call it a freak injury. Like, it was Lou Dort coming back uh, down for a rebound with his legs kind of sprawled out. Catches Paul George. His knee bends, like, inward in a nasty motion. He's out two to three weeks with a sprained knee. Rest of the regular season, basically. Right. It's March 24th. He was ruled out for two to three weeks. Sorry, he was going to be reevaluated in two to three weeks on March 23rd. So that's what, sometime April 6th to April 13th. The regular season ends, I believe, on April 8th or 9th. The playoffs start on the 15th. The play-in starts between then, and the Clippers very much could be in the play-in. They're currently in 5th and tied for 4th, but they're only two and a half games clear of 11th. So very possible that Paul George misses win-or-go-home games or early playoff games uh, if he doesn't get back like ASAP in that timeline and... As we know, for the Clippers, that it, even with Kawhi Leonard playing at just an absolutely Terminator-like level, you know, if you watched the Clippers beat the Thunder on Thursday night, I think Kawhi went, what, 13 of 15 from the field? Like, I'm not doubting what Kawhi, even as a one-man show, can do, let alone, you know, with a pretty good team around him. But, I mean, obviously concerning that one of their two stars is going to be out. I'm definitely doubting what Kawhi as a one-man show can do. Like, come on. I This is... They have a two-game cushion, right? And I'm actually going to save some of this for Make or Miss, because that's kind of what my, my Make or Miss this week is related to. But that cushion with, what, eight games left? I mean, that could very well hold up. You know, maybe they won't have to worry about getting through the play-in. They buy him an extra few days and he can get back for the first round. But yeah, I mean, it's, I I was already having considerable doubts about this team as you well know. Yeah. As was I. And and by the way, when I say I don't doubt what a one man show Kawhi can do, I don't mean as like a championship contender. I mean, as like holding the four for a few weeks and maybe being able to win a play in game. Like I, I wouldn't pick them to win a series with PGO. No, they're going to be 
kind of in dire straits. I feel like almost no matter what, like I, I don't feel, I mean, again, like I was already just feeling not great about them because they haven't been able to really get their act together this entire season. Yes. Kawhi has been absolutely insane lately, but even that hasn't really translated to them being much more than like a slightly above average team on the whole. And as their offense has kind of risen to, you know, the level that we probably expected it to be at coming into this season, their defense is consequently, well, maybe not consequently, but concurrently has slipped down to, you know, like the, the bottom 10 over the last six weeks or so. And it's just, they haven't had everything clicking at the same time, really at any point this season. So with PG set to either miss winner go home games, like you said, or just come back and presumably not be at a hundred percent. It's, uh, you know, that much more difficult to really take them seriously. The that's going to make any noise. Yeah. Uh, and then the other piece of Western conference news was that John Morant, who, when we spoke, what, two weeks ago, um, you know, you mentioned that you, you envisioned it being kind of like awkward when he comes back this season. I mentioned yeah. that I could very well see him not playing at all the rest of the season. And lo and behold, there he was this week coming off the bench for the Grizzlies. Any thoughts, not necessarily on like the off-court stuff, because I think we talked, you know, way more than enough about that, but just about like, I don't know what he looked like in his first game back. If you do have any more thoughts on anything. Well, I'll just say like the the reasons that I thought it was going to be awkward were all kind of there and not awkward in the sense, like clearly the Grizzlies fans were like really happy to have him back and they let him know. You don't think it's awkward or corny that his dad was wearing the redemption t-shirt? Because <laughs> I do. what I mean. Like, you know, the, the obviously the atmosphere in what, is they still play in FedEx forums? That's I, think it's still, I think it's still called FedEx forum. You know, the atmosphere in there was electric. They gave him standing ovation. They were clearly showing their appreciation and support. The you know, the awkwardness is in stuff like that. The sort of optics of you know, his, his family and friends sitting courtside wearing those redemption shirts. And just this idea of even at the time, and I mentioned this on the episode where we talked about it, about how it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, just sort of some of the language that was used to talk about this in terms of like, well, we're, you know, concerned for John. We're like, we want to be there for John. Like I'm by no means saying that people should not support him, should not, you know, want him to do whatever he feels like he needs to do uh, to feel better about what's going on in his life and should not like embrace him upon his return. Like, of course, like everybody's going to be happy that he's back and is going to want to support him. I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I just feel like the, that painted a picture of somebody who was engaging solely in self-destructive behavior rather than behavior that was actually pretty destructive to other people. Yeah. And this whole like redemption narrative just really feeds into that. And I, I don't know, like, I, I think Ja has generally been pretty contrite and seems genuinely to want to make better decisions. And, you know, all of that stuff seems to me to be coming from, a good and honest place. And I, I'm not saying sitting here saying like, I wanted him to sit out the rest of the season, but I'm just saying it, it did feel awkward in the way that I expected it to, because, you know, he left for two weeks. He apparently entered this counseling program and 
I mean, I, I don't think anybody genuinely believes that two weeks is enough time for somebody to completely change their life. And Josh said, I think that it's going to be an ongoing process. Like he's, he's still working on all of this stuff. So that's all well and good. I just, I felt the, the level of sort of discomfort with the whole thing that I kind of expected to when he came back. Um, in terms of him being back with the Grizzlies, like, you know, that first of all, they totally just rode out his absence in a way that we've seen them do now for a couple of years. They play really well, even without him. Uh, because they have that tremendous defensive infrastructure, they have depth, you know, they have Tyus Jones ready to step in and basically just be a high-level starting point guard who just happens to come off the bench for this team. And Jaron Jackson has, like, continued to ascend as kind of like an offensive, not an offensive centerpiece, but like somebody who whose offense can be good enough to sort of carry a team that can be elite defensively. Um so all that was really encouraging from an encore perspective. And I sort of think the team reestablished itself as like a genuine threat in the West. Yep. Yeah. Just added another element that we thought was there for the first, what, two thirds of the season thought maybe disappeared. And now looks like once again, that element of the, you know, the, the crazy West playoffs is back and it's just going to add another wrinkle to this. Um, really bloodbath that the West playoffs should be from start to finish, like from the first day of the play-in to the last day of the Western Conference Finals. Hell, the last two weeks of the regular season are almost like a mini playoffs in the West. I'm very happy to see that the Grizzlies are back in that mix because they're a great team, fun team to watch. They play hard. They get under team skin. We know all about Dylan Brooks. Having them part of this crazy West is good. You know, they, the team deserves it. The fans deserve it. The league, it's good for the league. Um, in terms of the off-court stuff, I'm with you. I think that was well said. I just think, uh, yes, obviously everyone wants, you know, Jaw to get better and, and to feel uh, himself mentally and like all that, but I don't think we need to celebrate his return for anything other than like, okay, he's back and here's hoping like he's good now. I don't think we need to celebrate as if he's overcome something because he did this all. This is not anything that, exactly. that you had to endure as like the victim of something or like, you know, a guy coming back from an injury and it's like, I worked so hard to get back to this level. It's like, nah, man, you were, you were out and then suspended because of a lot of concerning things that you brought on yourself. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, we, we have seen that, sort of narrative gets spun before in for, for things that are way more nefarious than yes. what Josh yes. did, you know, like I, yes. we don't have to go down like the yep. Derek Rose rabbit hole and I'm in no way comparing what the two of them did. No, uh, but I know what you mean, but you know, like it was the same thing, right? Like they, they treated it as something that he had overcome, like making it back from this adverse situation that again was, 100% created by him and involved something that he something destructive that he did to somebody else. It's a, a difficult thing I guess for uh the NBA PR machine to deal with. We know this and um you know we're we're kind of seeing another example of that I suppose. All right, you really want to talk ball now? Yes, please. Okay, let's do it. As promised off the top of the show, 
We're going to get into the teams in the East playoff picture, but we're not going to talk about every single one of them. What we're going to do is talk about the teams that we haven't talked about lately. So for example, like we just talked about the Knicks. Was it last week, two weeks ago? We're going to leave them aside for today. The Hawks. We're uh, done. I'm, I'm not having another conversation yes, about the Hawks you know, this season. Between my episode with Jeff Schultz and then us also talking um, amongst ourselves when Quinn Snyder was hired, we've talked more Hawks than even the Hawks deserve. So I think we can leave that there. And and the Bucks we talked about recently. Um, so we're, we're going to talk about the other teams in the East playoff picture. And we're going to start with the second place Boston Celtics, who look pretty entrenched in that 2-3 zone in the East now after mm. leading the East and the NBA for almost the entire season. They've fallen back of the red-hot Bucks. Uh, they went through a little trouble in December. Then they rebounded and ripped off some wins again. And got up to 35-12 and 12 as of January 22nd. But since then, not necessarily bad, but they're like 15-11. and 11, A little closer to pedestrian. A middle-of-the-pack offense is a big reason why their offense has really kind of clogged up since a great start. So I wanted to ask you what your take is on that and what you see as the culprits for that kind of sliding offense. Is it... Jason Tatum not being quite as otherworldly as he was early in the season? Is it, you know, um, the time without Robert Williams and their continued inability or unwillingness to get to the rim? What do you see as the reasons for their offensive regression? Yeah, I mean, on the whole, they're still, what, like third mm-hmm. in offense, fourth in defense? So yes. every team is going to have yep. ups and downs over the course of a season. And if you're netting out to having you know, top five marks on both sides of the ball, you're probably doing some things right. It's not unlike when we talked about the Nuggets what, last week or two weeks ago. When you're leading the conference that long, now different because the Nuggets had built up a huge lead, but it is just really hard to stay as sharp as these teams had been for an entire 82 games. Absolutely. And I, I think part of it is they were playing above their heads offensively early in the season. We even talked about that on this podcast where... They were shooting a ton of threes, which they still are. That's a huge part of their offense. And they had just basically caught a team-wide heater where like everyone on the team was shooting (laughs) above 40% from deep. And if you're shooting a ton of threes and burying that many of them, then yeah, your offense is going to look incredible. And it wasn't, you know, even at the time I said, like they weren't just chucking up shots. Like the process behind the way they were getting those shots was fantastic because it was a lot of drive and kick like they were creating rim pressure and touching the paint and spraying passes out and really putting defenses in rotation so it's not like you know they were just getting lucky like they were creating quality threes for a lot of quality shooters but the shooting as a whole like has really regressed and that's pulled their offense down with it like and that does speak to a kind of problem with their offense which is that They just don't generate a lot of rim pressure. And I think, you know, if we're talking about just not being as sharp as they were early in the season, it does just feel like they aren't playing with quite the same continuity. You know, like there are more one pass possessions that end in ISOs. They seem a bit more willing to settle for jumpers. And I I feel like, you know, as good as Jalen Brown has been, like he's been amazing as a self-creator and the Celtics obviously need him and you know I like vouch for him as an all-star starter I do feel like things are actually like a little bit less sticky when he's on the bench like they flow a little bit better but again his self-creation is like so so high level at this point that 
it, it doesn't even matter. Um, but I, but I have noticed that, that they're just not quite as zippy with their actions. They don't move the ball as quickly. And even something like screening, I feel like they're not as diligent about making sure that their screens are actually hitting where, uh, you know, opponents are actually able to just sort of like fight through those screens and they're not creating as much separation or the same kind of advantages that they were with those screening actions early in the year. So uh, some of that stuff that can be cleaned up, like they're not going to reach the heights consistently that they did early in the year just because i feel like that was driven so much by ridiculously hot and unsustainable shooting but on the whole i I think this is still you know at the very least like a top seven or eight offense um even if you know the the top three or four mark that it's holding on to right now is buoyed a little bit by that early season heater to me the kind of thing with the celtics is the power of this team lies more in the lack of weaknesses than it does in like having any particular overwhelming strength. And that's, you know, if you're trying to be a matchup proof playoff team, I feel like that's almost preferable in a way. I mean, we're going to see, right? Like we're going to see how that stacks up to teams like, you know, Milwaukee and Denver where they do have these overwhelming strengths, but also some holes. Whereas Boston is just like super solid across the board. No, I think that's a really good way of putting it because even in watching, you know, this, the quote unquote slide, I, it's not like I watch them and think like, here's what's going to undo them come the spring or like, oh, there's what teams are going to really pick on. It's like, no, you still can't really find this like glaring weakness or Achilles heel with them. And that's why it's, yeah, maybe not that interesting, but I just can't, I can't even like fake concern for this team. Now that, that doesn't mean like I'm picking them to win the East. We all, like I keep saying, I think Milwaukee's still the best team. They they are showing it right now too, but like the Celtics are also very capable of just winning the championship. Like they're that good still on paper. They're still probably in my mind, the second best and maybe like probably the deepest team. I think they're fine. And if they don't ultimately, you know, meet the standards, I guess, of their like most optimistic supporters or fans or whatever, or people that think this team needs to get back to the finals, if they don't meet that, I don't think it's going to be because of like some fatal flaw that we've seen emerge in the last month or two. I think it'll just be because, you know, not every team can win. Yeah. And I think you just see these glimpses where you, you understand the gear that they can hit even in a bit of a regular season lull, like that game against the Kings, you know, a few nights ago, whenever that was, it's like, that's what they can do to even the most elite offense in the NBA right now is like their ability to switch across all those different positions and just completely gum up an offense that relies on movement and off ball screening action and all that, and like dribble handoffs and all that stuff that you, anticipate creating advantages against a defense that can't switch everything uh they're really able to do that and sort of flatten you out and you know it's like a lot of the time they will have tatum or brown guarding the opposing team center and horford or rob williams will be roving off of like a non-threatening wing and they're able to just switch like all the one five pick and rolls and one of those guys is able to play like a one-man zone around the rim And it's just really difficult to deal with. And that is, you know, it's facilitated by like, no, no other team can really do that because you got to be stout 
across the board. And it's really like the guard defense where I feel like they just have that over everybody else. And we know about Marcus Smart, but holy shit, man, Derek White. I think he's got to make an all defense team this year. I think he's been better defensively than Marcus Smart has this year. Wow. He's having and a great year overall. Yeah. I mean, he's, yeah, he's a big part of their offense too. Like his decisiveness and just like ability to get into the paint and he's shooting way better than he did last season for the Celtics as well. So White is like the best shot blocking guard in the NBA right now. I don't think it's particularly close. He might also be the best screen navigator in the league. Like he just, I don't know. He does so much to help make that defense uh, the, the monster that it is. And I think at some point soon we'll we'll actually do our all defense team. So maybe when I actually sit down to work it out, like him and Smart will both wind up on one of those two teams for me. But like if there's only one guy this year, I'm actually probably picking White over Smart. You could probably build if you know you build your front court the right way. You could probably build a contending team in 2023 with Malcolm Brogdon and Derek White as your starting backcourt. Absolutely. You could. They're both reserve guards for this team. It's just, yeah, that, that to my point of, it's just really hard for me to even pretend I'm concerned about them because they've been less elite over the last couple months. I think we can move on yes. to the third place team, the Philadelphia 76ers, who so I, I didn't realize that our episode with Trill, our Sixers-centric episode with Trill, was already as far back as it was for some reason. You know, in the, in the blur that is the NBA season, I, f- I thought we like talked to him only like four or five weeks ago. And I was like, all right, well, we can skip the Sixers. You informed me that it's actually been a couple months. And so I think you're a little more prepared to talk about the Sixers today than I am. But I'm, yeah, I'm still, I'm still game to talk about them. But why don't you tell me what you're thinking about the Philadelphia 76ers? Well, I, I mean, you tell me actually, because you look right. at their overlying numbers. Mm-hmm. And right now they're third in offense and they're tied for fifth in defense. They're a half game behind Boston for the two seed in the East. I mean, this is the profile of a true blue championship contender, right? Which they are. And I guess I have some reservations and I wonder if you share them. And it's funny because like I'm sitting here and this is me come coming into the season i was like if there was no baggage here if we didn't have any sort of priors and know what we know about like the the track record and the playoffs of james harden and joel Embiid's health and doc rivers and yada 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 the scars there and the baggage then i would just be saying this is like the best team and this should be the championship favorite and here they are basically playing like that team that i expected them to be and i kind of have reservations about them for reasons that don't even really have to do with those scars. And I don't know, I guess I, I kind of want to know your take on the success that they've had and whether there's anything about it that feels not fake, but if there's anything, I guess it makes it feel a little bit like a house of cards to you apart from the the sort of history with some of the principles involved i mean not really as a basketball team purely as a basketball team the way they're constructed the players that they have you should have faith that the philadelphia 76ers are capable of winning the nba championship this year and that this is probably their best chance that they've had 
since they last won the championship in the 1980s. Although you could probably make the argument still for that Jimmy Butler team, even though they ended up losing in the second round, like that team was built to win, ended up losing to the champions on a, you know, a four bounce post beaver. But anyway, I digress. This team is as close to the championship level as that team was, if not more. Um, but <laughs> that baggage is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like, like we're not making any of that stuff up. We're not trying to be Sixers haters. You especially aren't. And I'm not saying I am, but yeah, do I have fun sometimes talking trash in general? Yes. But those, I'm sorry, but those things do come into the picture when you are trying to like decipher in a balanced year, like who's going to separate themselves from the pack. If it's like, hey, these teams are pretty evenly matched. Their best players, you know, are both two of the three or four best players in the league. I'm having a hard time separating them. And I've got one. I'm just using Milwaukee as an example. I've got one who, you know, as recently as two years ago, won the championship. And I've seen their best player now get it done at that level. And the other team is like, ah, that's like very much the opposite. Yeah. Then yeah, I'm going, I'm going to go with that other team. Like, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't think it necessarily is wrong or like makes us haters or makes us like not using the right logic to say, well, I think like, that's why I'm not picking them. Don't you think it's crazy though? Like, let's think about that 2019 Sixers team and the 2021 Bucks, right? Okay. The 2019 Sixers have their season end on that ridiculous four bounce shot from Kawhi at the buzzer. I know exactly right. And the Bucks survive because Kevin Durant's toe, like the very edge of his toe, was on the line in what would have been a game-winning three-pointer in game seven of the second round, like the same stage of the playoffs. That could have ended for Milwaukee, and it, it could have gone the other way for both teams. Mm-hmm. I, th- I've said this before, but it's like we get hung up on, you know, the, the 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 thing that happened and then sort of decide retroactively that nothing else could have happened. And I believe that that is not true. So that's oh. one point, but sorry, go ahead. No, I was just say I completely agree with that, and I've talked about that before too. Like I'm, I'm well aware of how thin the margins are between winning mm-hmm. and losing, and even at, especially at the highest level, and how that can incorrectly taint legacies or create these narratives that don't really exist. My counter to that in in, in this specific situation would be that Sixers team that you know I don't think should necessarily be labeled losers or whatever based on the fact that they came within inches of at least overtime in game seven of the second round against the eventual champs. That Sixers team, I got no problems with, but that Sixers team had Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. That's a big, we're going to talk about the heat later too. Like a big difference between having Jimmy Butler and not having Jimmy Butler. And so if you look at the Philadelphia 76ers in the playoffs in 2020 and 2021, and the way they flamed out, you know, in the in the second round, twenty twenty two, I think we were like that's three the years. The Sixers in twenty twenty three have DeAnthony Melton cash. <laughs> have you considered that? You know what? That's a fair counterpoint. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. Like it is. It's not like I'm sitting here thinking like James Harden, Joel Embiid, or Pumpkins. Like James Harden is one of the greatest players of his generations and one of the greatest offensive players in NBA history. Joel Embiid is one of the greatest players of his generation. Uh, he's been like a top two player in the NBA the last three years, perennial MVP candidate, one of the greatest drivers of winning, or at least, and I'm, I really don't mean this as a slight, at least regular season winning in the NBA right now. Like I am not in any way saying that on a basketball level, these guys can't come together and compete for and maybe win a title this year. 
I'm just saying that it's also very fair, like when you talk about that baggage and stuff, to bring that into the conversation when trying to separate them from a team like Milwaukee or a team like Boston or, you know, name your best West team, whatever. Yeah. So I guess I will quickly try to lay out the case for and against, because like you said, far from being a Sixers hater, like I'm looking for every possible reason to believe in this team, you know, not just because I came into this season making the bold prediction that Embiid would win MVP and they would finally get over that hump and make it to the conference finals, but because I think Embiid deserves it, frankly, you know, like I, I just want to see him get over that hump. And, you know, that, that probably has to start with him just having a close to fully healthy playoff run at some point in time. Hopefully this is the year that happens. Um, but, you know, the big thing for me is he's never been better. And I think he's never been better because he's playing in a way that he's never played before. Like, even when Butler was there, Embiid was still basically this very post-centric offensive hub who was getting most of his offense and orchestrating most of Philly's offense from a stationary position, you know, and and it was that way basically up until even this season. Cause like last year, the, the Harden and bead pick and roll did not get to the level that it got to this year in terms of like volume and effectiveness. So he's gone from being this player who was quite stationary in terms of like, you know, whether his back was to the basket or whether he was facing up to a guy who now is pretty much always catching the ball on the move and is like pretty much like a, a permanent role man now. Like that's where he's getting the bulk of his offense from. And I just think it's made the game so much easier for him. And that's where I'm thinking like, okay, Harden is clearly not what he was as a scorer. And I have some concerns about that, but just that two man game and the way that it can unlock and beat is a big difference from prior iterations of, of this team and like no defense really has been able to solve that empty side Harden and beat pick and roll. And I don't know that they're necessarily going to be able to. So the things that concern me, like one of them is very much not new. It's still like the non Embiid minutes are, are still a massive problem. Even now that doc rivers is like staggering Harden and Embiid a little bit more than he was like, it, it's still a massive problem. They haven't like, I don't think Paul Reed is the answer to their backup center woes. he's got a great motor. He makes energy plays and I, you know, I, I I like him, but he doesn't have it offensively and even defensively where I feel like he kind of specializes or is supposed to, he's still undersized there and like, doesn't have great instincts in ball screen coverage. So like, I I just think that's going to continue to be an issue for them. And then, I mean, the secondary scoring thing still does give me some worry because with Harden, like, yes, he is shown more of a willingness to, like, take what the defense gives him and, and go to that mid-range step back or mid-range pull-up. because and, and he needs to, like, because he can't get to the rim the way that he used to. And he can't finish at the rim the way that he used to. So he needs that as a counter. Uh, he's shooting more threes off the catch, which has been great to see. But he's still a little bit too reluctant to take those shots and a little bit too slow sometimes on the release. And it's just like when when Embiid is getting double teamed on the block, like you can't afford to let those windows close. And I still think he does that a little bit too often. And just like the the waning explosiveness 
And like I said, like the inability to really like do a lot of damage at the rim anymore kind of makes me worried about what might happen to him in the playoffs as a scorer. And as much as he can do for Embiid as a playmaker, if he's not providing that supplemental scoring punch, then uh, I do worry, you know, as much as like, again, third in offense so far this year, like they've been incredible at that end of the floor, but uh, I, I still have some questions there. And I guess that ties into my larger sort of level of concern about this team as a whole, which is that like the things that can sort of supplement Embiid offensively come with, you know, some downsides at the other end of the floor. Like Maxi is the big one, right? He, he is such a shot in the arm for them. He comes into the game. He completely changes the tempo, changes the geometry of their offense just because of his ability to attack those diagonal gaps off of the catch. He plays really well off of Harden, but then like defensively, it's still kind of a problem, right? Like he can't teams, honestly, I think attack him more than they attack Harden. And he really struggles to keep the ball in front or to maintain, you know, legal guarding position and has his body turned the wrong way. And guys are able to initiate contact and get free throws out of that. That's going to be a challenge. And then like at the other end, it's like they, I, I don't know if they have enough defensive wing depth to survive just like shelving PJ Tucker, which they might have to do because of the way that he can kneecap their offense. So that's all sort of coming together to make me feel like I, as much as this team's played great, I still don't know if I really believe in them as much as I kind of want to. All right, let's move on to Cleveland, where it feels like it's been quiet excellence for them, where maybe because they've been pretty firmly entrenched in that four spot for most of the year where they're like not quite, you know, hanging with top three teams in the East that we've already talked about, but they're also a lot better, I think, than the rest of the East. And they've just kind of been locked in that space. It feels like it's been a quiet kind of excellent season for them, but they've had elite metrics all season on both ends. It's why they have the best point differential in the league. They are number two in defense and number eight in offense. They've also won eight of 10 recently. Like it's, it's not really like they've slid. They maybe had a bit of a lull like every team has, but they're back to playing Really good ball on both ends. I think Mobley, when it comes to his individual offense, he's really come on recently. And that's not to say that his offense was bad to start the year, but I think you saw it more as part of like the team dynamic and what he can do as part of that. And I think recently you're really starting to see the individual offense pop, which takes his ceiling to another level. And so you put it all together. It's like, okay, they've, you know, they've got it on both ends. They've got a legit offensive superstar in Donovan Mitchell and multiple high-level shot creators between him and Darius Garland. Elite defense, huge front court, very defensively capable. Yeah, they're missing that like fifth starter maybe that ties it all together. And that is a weakness, but especially this season, no team is close to perfect. So I don't think that should necessarily be seen as like, well, here's why they definitely can't win. And I say all of that, and yet... If you ask, definitely yeah, exactly. If you ask me, well, can they win the championship this year? I'd be like, no. I mean, like, yes, if you're asking me, like, can they win? But like, 38 things would have to break their way and go wrong for other teams. Like, really, can they win? I'd say no. So my question to you would be, why? Is it as simple as, man, they need that fifth starter? Like, they need a true forward three to like tie it all together. Um, They could use a little more shooting. What? Would you say is the reason why 
you apparently agree with me that despite the best point differential in the league, pretty consistent excellence all the way through, neither one of us feels that they are a true championship contender yet. Yeah, a few things. I mean, we can start with that fifth starter spot because their top four is incredible. Like I would put that top four up there with any team in the league outside of like maybe Milwaukee and Phoenix. And it's just like, this has been a storyline throughout the season and basically like from the moment they made the Donovan Mitchell trade. So it's not that interesting or exciting to talk about, but it just, the wing situation is a concern. And like they have had over the course of the season, good stretches from Isaac Okoro and from Chetty Osman and from Dean Wade and Lamar Stevens, good stretches from all those guys, but they are lacking the consistency and the reliability from that spot. And it's like, okay, they, they have four guys who I would feel really good about as backup wings on a contender, but none that I feel good about as starters. And like, you could throw Levert into that mix too, but I don't love him playing the three defensively. And I just don't think we're going to see many, if any high leverage playoff minutes with him, Garland and Mitchell all on the floor together. So in general, they just don't have good two way balance at that spot. And the like honestly Chetty has probably been the best of the bunch on balance like Wade was great early in the season but he's really cooled off um so I, I don't know where they land with it but I feel like where it really manifests is as a lack of shooting and that means like with with Mobley and Allen they're often playing three non-spacers at the same time And it's funny because you look at the Cavs overall numbers and if you didn't know anything about their roster, you'd think they were basically an average or slightly above average three-point shooting team because they're 16th in three-point attempt rate and 13th in three-point percentage. But that's because Garland and Mitchell together account for basically half of their three-point attempts and Garland shoots 41% and Mitchell shoots 38% from deep. So those overall numbers aren't really representative of their ability to space the floor. And you just watch them and you can see that it's hard for them sometimes to get what they want in like middle pick and roll because the corners will both be occupied by like non-shooters. Like they will have Mobley in one corner and a Coro in the other corner a lot of the time. And that just really rewards defenses that tag aggressively and clog up the middle of the floor. And I'm well aware that Isaac Okoro hit a game-winning three from the corner last night and that he is, in fact, shooting 37% from the corner for the season. But he's doing it on really low volume and he is just not going to get guarded there. Like, defenses are not going to respect that three anytime soon. And so that, that makes it difficult for them. Like, they will do things to try and mitigate that issue. They'll have those guys cut from the corner or, or they'll have them set, like, hammer screens for one of Mitchell or Garland to curl around. Um, but, it, but it makes it hard for the Cavs to be just like a basic spread pick and roll offense, which is kind of too bad because they have two incredible spread pick and roll operators. And it really is a credit to those two guys that they have gotten that Cavs offense to the level that it's at. You know, like I think eighth in the league, right? Per, per 100 possessions yep. this season. Um, it's uh, it, Sometimes the spacing just doesn't even matter because of how good they are as pull-up jump shooters. This is another incredible stat. Like we're talking about the Cavs as being a shooting challenge team. And yet they are 
the number one pull-up jump shooting team, sorry, number two pull-up jump shooting team in the league in terms of effective field goal percentage. But number one is Brooklyn, who I think is basically being buoyed by some yes. early season shooting from players who no longer play there. Yeah. Even though Mikhail Bridges, as we mentioned on last episode, <laughs> is shooting the lights out yeah. since the trade. But I just think like it can't be overstated how incredible the offensive seasons of those two guys, and especially Mitchell, have been just because I mean he like Garland does a lot of it as a shooter and he's a pretty good driver as well but Mitchell like really drives and gets to the rim and finishes at the rim even though he's playing in a crowd a lot so it's been those two guys kind of lifting all boats and and I agree like Mobley offensively has really come alive lately and Jared Allen is honestly a pretty underrated offensive yeah. player not just as like a pick and roll finisher but as a guy who can get you a bucket in the post and you know is not totally hopeless making like one or two dribble moves if if there's a guy between him and the basket and like a pretty good short roll passer. But it, it's just, I love that they use Garland and Mitchell in action together. Like they'll run double drag action where one of them is setting the first screen and like a big man is setting the second screen. And then the, the first screener is like flying off a flare. Like they run a lot of stuff like that. Um, they had a there was a play against Miami recently where they just ran like a ghost pick and roll at the top of the floor. Like Mitchell ghosted a screen and then popped out behind the three point line. Garland like faked the pass to him, and it was such a convincing ball fake that like both the Heat defenders just ran out at him and Garland got a wide open three out of it. I love that they used those guys together, but that means that they're both at the top of the floor and the corners are filled by much lesser shooters. So uh, I guess that's the the big concern that I have about their offense and I've been talking for a while now so I don't know if you if you want to mention anything about their defense which has been you know pretty much going like it's them Milwaukee and Memphis have been trading have been taking turns like with the number one defense in the league for the entire season but I don't know do you do you not still have maybe some concern about whether that's going to hold up in the playoffs given the guard situation I think there should be concern about what teams who, you know, are only preparing for the Cleveland Cavaliers and are playing for their life might try to do to Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland on that end of the floor in a playoff series. But I also think that those two guys have done enough this regular season, not not to make me think they're good defenders, no, but I think they've done enough from an effort perspective to make me think that, Look, if they're going to bust their asses that much, you know, as much as they have from October to March on that end of the court, I find it hard to believe that, like, if that part of it, you know, what will disappear the way, say, it did for Mitchell in the playoffs the last couple of years. Like, I think at the very, very least, both those guys are going to be playing their asses off on that end. And that can't make up for all of the limitations they have on that end, but it can make up for a little. And so while I do think teams will probably do a better job of picking on them in the playoffs... I don't necessarily think it's going to be this like outrageously egregious performance from them on that end where you're just like, well, well, here's why they can't win. Look at these two sieves on at the point of attack. You know, like I, I think it won't quite be that level. And I also think that like, you know, the same thing we said at the beginning of the season or when they first traded for Mitchell and that's proven correctly in addition to their improved effort is that if you're going to have a, a 
backcourt that's as defensively compromised as a Mitchell Garland backcourt, you really can't ask for more insurance than Evan Mobley and Jared Allen behind them. And so might the defense slide a bit in the playoffs when those guys get targeted a bit more? Sure. But do I think it's going to be, you know, like the reason that they can't get over a hump in the playoffs or whatever? No, I, I think it's, if something's going to undo them, it will be more along the lines of like finding that fifth guy to play with them, finding the third shooter to have on the court with those guys. Having two non-shooters is tough enough in the modern NBA. You know, the Cavs make it work because of how good Mitchell and Garland are. Having three non-shooters on the court, especially in the playoffs when you are playing against really elite teams that can pick you apart, I think that's where it's going to get too tough. And so I, I, I'm much more concerned about that aspect of it than I am about Mitchell and Garland's defense based on what I've seen in the regular season. Yeah, those guys have been good like I think if they've been good for the second best defense in the league yeah like not even just by their standards I think no. just by like NBA guard yeah. defensive standards they've been like above average defensively this year it's more just when I like compare them to like com- it's a tough comparison but again these have been two of the teams that have been trading first in defensive efficiency all season so like let's compare them to Milwaukee right Milwaukee's set up very similarly in the front court play two bigs you know, one guy like who's a little bit more of the drop defender while the other guy is more like the Swiss army knife who's doing everything all around the court, even though actually like Jared Allen, like they use him in quite versatile ways. They're very willing to switch him out. So point being, they're set up similarly in the front court, but obviously you have a lot more faith in the Bucks at the point <laughs> yeah. of attack yes. than you do in Cleveland. And then it's like compare them to Boston, you know, the defense that we were just talking about having pretty much no weaknesses and no places to really attack. I don't know. That's where I start to think, well, maybe the the Cavs just aren't as well equipped defensively. And that's kind of where they're supposed to be buttering their bread. So no, I get that. But at the end of the day, it's like, okay, you know, even with the improvements from Mitchell and Garland on that end, are they, at, is their defense as playoff proof as Milwaukee and Boston? No, short answer. Would I pick them to beat Milwaukee or Boston in the playoffs? No, but I think that's okay right now for where they are. Like, I think they are very much the fourth best team in the East. I think they're like a top five team overall in the entire NBA. And that's pretty damn good. Like they're an elite team that just happens to be in a very rare year where like three of the four best, maybe the three best teams in the league are all in their conference. And so, okay. So sorry, just quickly, they're a top five team. Does that mean they're better than Denver in your mind or better than Phoenix or? uh, Well, okay. Memphis. It's different now because of the Suns getting Kevin Durant. Yeah. But. I'd, I'd say the Cavs have been a top five team this season. Mm. Now, if you're talking ultimate ceilings, probably not. But again, that's why I'm saying it's okay. Like when we talk about how playoff proof the backcourt defense is, it's like, even if it's not, you you like, we're not talking about a team that's all in trying to win a championship right now where you're right. like, oh man, if, if their backcourt defense isn't quite what it was in the regular season, they're screwed. And they're like, where do they go from here? Like, it's fine. You know? Yeah. They're not going to beat Milwaukee, Boston, you know, a healthy Phoenix if they somehow match them up in the finals. Like, they're not going to beat those teams. Right. But we wouldn't have thought that regardless. Like, I do wonder, though, like, if if it does sort of prove to be their undoing to the point that, and I very much don't think this is going to happen, but let's say, like, they lose a first-round series to, like, the Knicks or Heat, or they, like, battle through that first-round series and then just get, like, dusted, swept out of the second round by Milwaukee. Then does that force a reckoning or a reaccounting 
of what it is they're doing and and how they can improve? I honestly don't think so because I think like they're year one into this vision, I guess that they have since getting Mitchell. And I think like for sure, I think a front office and a team trying to win a championship should always be thinking about that. stuff. I'm not saying they completely dismiss it, but I really think they've been good enough this year where even a, like barring something really bad, like, I don't know if they get dusted somehow by the Knicks, which I don't think will happen. But if it's like something like that, where it's just so out of character for what they've seen, where you really think like, oh, maybe they're actually not built for the playoffs, whatever, then maybe. But, you know, if they end up getting waxed by Milwaukee, Boston, or Philly in the second round, I find it hard to believe that they they would make any sort of, yeah, panic move or anything like that. And even with Mitchell, like, even if you don't think he's there for the long, long haul, like, he's still under contract for two more years after this. So they, they really have time to continue to build around this big four that they've got. And I think they'll continue to do that. And I think they'll be fine regardless of what happens this postseason. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's take the break and come back and talk about a few more East teams. Plus, we'll do a make or miss and a fan shout out. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, we'll find a few more teams to talk about here uh, in the bottom half of the East playoff picture. And the first one to talk about yeah. is the Miami Heat, who have been underwhelming this season, sometimes depressing to watch. In the top feel- six, though, officially. Yeah, exactly. That's where I was getting. I was going to say very much feels like a fading, aging team on their last leg, on its last legs. And yet, <laughs> they're up to 40 and 34 now after a 7 and 3 stretch in their last 10 games. They're up into the top six in the East, which would, you know, get them into the playoffs proper immediately. Also, uh oh, maybe for Philly if they're <laughs> matching in the 3 6. Not Look, I'd pick Philly, but as we were talking off air yesterday, I'd, that would bring talk about some demons for the Sixers if they you know after this season end up randomly with the Heat in a first round matchup. They're also only a game and a half behind the sliding Knicks, so they could get up to fifth again. I wouldn't pick them in a series against Cleveland, but probably not the team the Cavs are hoping to see when they for a while thought they'd be getting the Knicks or the Nets. Look, Bam's having a great year recently. Tyler Hero offensively has really bounced back from a, a bit of a weird stretch that he went through. They're doing the usual heat stuff where like Caleb Martin's been great for them all year, but they really overall have been a pretty underwhelming team. That's like you go past their top two or three players and you're like this team's not very good except that Jimmy freaking Butler who, you know, as Eric Spolster called him recently, a generational competitor. And Wolfon, I, I know you just personally love anytime the heat culture stuff bubbles to the surface and, and is and is lauded. But uh, no, for real, Jimmy Butler, that generational competitor. I was going to walk out of here and leave you with the spinning chair. <laughs> Dude, the last, he, he's had a great season overall, but I'd say like the last month and a half, two months, Jimmy Butler's been basically as good as anyone in the league as a, as a two-way player. 33-year-old Jimmy Butler averaging 22.9 points, which, by the way, is his highest average in six years and the second highest of his career. 
6.1 rebounds, 5.1 assists, 1.9 steals, shooting just under 35% for three, but he's also barely taking them. He's shooting 55.5% inside the arc, 85% from the free throw line while attempting nearly nine a game. We know how hard it is to keep him off the free throw line. Awesome two-way player who has turned it up to another level on defense, even for his standards recently, and uh, is the reason why the Heat, despite being that underwhelming kind of fading team, are where they are still in the standing. So what have you seen from this team? I mean, I I wouldn't pick them to win a round, but I do think they will crack the top six now, especially the way Brooklyn has kind of slid and the Knicks too. Is there one playoff matchup that maybe you do think actually gives them a chance to win a round? What, what are your thoughts here? I mean, gives them a chance to win a round? Yeah, they would have a chance against Cleveland, I think. If I'm thinking about the matchup against Philly, I'm only really saying they have a chance because of like precedent and yeah, exactly. That's like a concession. Basketball that's reasons. a concession to some unknowable real estate that they might own in Philly's heads and the way that that might affect those teams psychologically. And I don't like to put a lot of stock into that because, like I said, it's unknowable and it yep. would just be pure speculation. So. I, I, I would give them a shot against Cleveland. Like there's the experience factor and also the fact that, you know, Cleveland doesn't really have that wing stopper that they could throw at Jimmy Butler and that could cause some problems. Like Mobley has been the primary on Butler when they've played. And that's actually worked out pretty well because he can hold his own on Butler in single coverage. And when Butler's off the ball, that just sort of springs Mobley loose as a rover because you don't really have to worry about Butler as an off-ball shooting threat. So I I don't hate the matchup for Cleveland, but if there is a team that I'm looking at and like, okay, Miami can beat them, then that would probably be it. I think, look, at the end of the day, this is the 25th ranked offense in the league. It does feel like they should be better than they are because Butler is still incredible and having an amazing season. And Bam is having a, a great season. And like you mentioned, Hero has been quite good lately. And, you know, overall has pretty much done what the Heat realistically could have asked or expected him to do. And a bunch of their role players have stepped up and and been solid too, you know, like especially Caleb Martin, who I think has filled that power forward role vacated by PJ Tucker pretty admirably. So it feels like they should be better, but I, I guess, you know, between the flimsy front court depth, which has been helped ever so slightly by the arrivals of Kevin Love and Cody Zeller, but just the fact that they needed to sign those guys and that, you know, immediately after being signed on the buyout market, Kevin Love became their starting power forward and Cody Zeller became like their backup five playing 15 minutes a game just tells you how flimsy that front court depth was and still is. So between that and the fact that Lowry is not the same guy, and I I think he's looked pretty good coming off the bench since returning from that injury, but he's been coming off the bench and playing pretty well, but you know, that's not what the Heat are paying him $30 million a year to do. Like, they need more from him than that. And really, it's like the shooting regression has probably been the biggest thing because they were the number one three-point shooting team in the league last season, and this year they're 27th. And that has just made it really difficult uh, for them to even, to run efficient you, offense. If there's one thing you thought maybe Kevin Love could still do, and he, like, you know, he can still pass and, and do other things, but I'm saying if you thought the three-point shooting would age all right for Kevin Love. He's not had a good year behind the arc. And since joining the Heat, is shooting 28% from deep. So, yeah. 
it's not ideal. So it just feels like there maybe isn't enough there around that Butler Bam hero trio at this point. And just on the whole, like there's the shooting limitation and there's the fact that they barely get to the rim in part because they have a hard time spacing the floor, but also because they don't really have anybody who can consistently break down a defense off the dribble. Like even Butler, yep. his game, his driving game is sort of more predicated on like probing and methodical and like bruising drives. And he does a lot of his damage from like mid range and floater range. So there's just not a lot of rim pressure. Their offense is like worryingly dependent on Bam's touch from the middle of the floor. And if he has it, then their offense will be fine. And in the games that he doesn't, it like dies on the vine because there are so many possessions where they're like running the offense through him and he's like the DHO hub. And then if the defense kind of takes those handoffs away, it's sort of up to him to make something happen. Um, You know, that, that can be on the short roll or just like on a keeper play. But if he doesn't have that sort of in between game going, like if he doesn't have the touch for mid range, it's really tough for their offense. Like they're just, they don't have a lot of stuff that they can get to. I don't feel like apart from just like Jimmy spinning magic and like creating something out of nothing. Their defense has been actually bad. It's been 23rd over the last month or so. I'm not really worried about that. Like I still feel like defensively they have a gear that they can get to and like can really ratchet it up when they need to, in spite of the fact that they play some minus defenders, the scheme works right? Like to the point that they are like rapid fire toggling through different schemes and they'll just have these crunch time possessions and they've played more crunch time than anyone this season, like where they just snuff everything out with a combination of like physical switches and hedges and like guys fighting through screens. Like they do all of that and change it up on the fly without miscommunicating. And it's very impressive. Uh, I'm not really worried about that end of the floor for them, but the offense is ultimately going to prove to be their undoing to me. And like, I, yes, they can win a series, I guess, if the matchup is right, but I'm certainly not going to expect that from them. Yeah. They're at best the fifth best team in the Eastern conference. And I don't find them all that interesting right now. A team who is worse than them, but I think is a lot more interesting is the Brooklyn Nets. Really? What what do you think is interesting about them? Well, I just think that it, it post-deadline and after the KD move, I think watching what Mikel Bridges can become and, and just kind of the, the spirit they play with, it actually is very reminiscent for me of the, the 2018-19 Nets mm. that you know eventually led to the acquisitions of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Even the 2019-20 Nets who when Kyrie got hurt and they still didn't have KD, like the way they played down the stretch of that season, they ended up getting swept by the Raptors in the playoffs. But I thought they they had like a spirit and uh, competitiveness about them that was still fun to watch. And I enjoy watching this Nets team, even post KD and Kyrie, even though I don't necessarily expect big things from them. And something I've talked about as well, I even made a whole video about it for the Scores YouTube page, is that if you look at the way the Nets are constructed right now, between the youthfulness and like guys like Claxton and Bridges and uh, the way they're set up contracts wise going forward. Like I actually think they do have a pretty good supporting cast in place. If they were to land a star, I know based on what they went through with KD and Kyrie, they're not going to be in any rush to like sell their souls for another star. But having said that they are also very different 
than a the usual team who just traded superstars would be because while they have a ton of draft capital from those trades, not much of it is their own. Like the Rockets own a lot of Brooklyn's draft future. And so the Nets are in this really unique position where they're a young team with some really good young players and a lot of cap flexibility going forward with a ton of draft capital, but one who actually has an incentive to be good for the next few years, or at least not bad, not terrible, because none of that draft capital is their own. And I think, personally, I think that you add it all together, that adds up to a team who actually makes a lot of sense for a star trade or a kind of win now trade coming up. So I think they're interesting for those reasons as a team that I think might be able to land, maybe not you know a star at the level of KD or even Kyrie, but something mm-hmm. in the near future and could be back to being pretty competitive pretty soon. Um, but in the meantime, like I said, I just think they're a fun watch and I'm really enjoying watching Mikel Bridges discover what he can be. Yeah, and you know, to your point, they play really hard. They yep. they do really battle. They move the ball. They have to gang rebound because they're a pretty small team, but they do that pretty effectively. Like they they definitely fight. Um I have a question for you, I guess, which is okay, so let's say that superstar trade doesn't happen. Yeah. And, we, and we've talked about Bridges a bunch. Is there any other sort of young player on that team that really intrigues you in terms of you know, maybe being a building block there moving forward. Uh, I mean, look, everyone remembers the, the, the Cam Thomas hot streak that happened a, a month or two ago. Yeah, his but insanity no, think, run is most definitely right. over. No, I think it's uh, it's Bridges and Claxton. And I think, yeah. but that's a, that's a fine duo to start with as a, as a young team coming up. Like, you know, that's maybe that's not a future championship duo, but I do think, like I said, it's a fine duo to start with. Yeah. I think they're both good two-way players. You know, obviously Claxon has some offensive limitations, but in general, I think that's a really solid two-way start to whatever they're building there. And uh, again, there's a lot of flexibility. They can take this in a number of different directions. Like, I think they're primed to make a star trade if they wanted to or if the right one presents itself. I also don't think they have to rush because I think based on what they're building, I think they'll remain competitive enough that I don't necessarily think they have to worry about like losing the number one pick to the Rockets or something like that. And even this year, like they went from a team that was like all in to suddenly kind of playing with house money where there aren't really any expectations and they are this like fun, loving young team. And and that in and of itself is interesting. But yeah, in terms of what they can do this year, not much. I mean, they're, they might be hard pressed to just end up making the playoffs because they're down to sixth or seventh now. I think seventh. Because yeah, because yeah, the Heat are up six, so they're now in play-in range. And you start looking at it with what they're left with post trades. Like, are they going to really beat some of those other maybe more veteran or more win now teams in that mix to get into the playoffs? Maybe not. So they might not even end up making the playoffs, but I still think that's fine for where they are. But uh, yeah, eight and fifteen in their last twenty-three games, and six and twelve since uh the new guys debuted so not a good team but i think that's also fine you know who's been sneakily kind of awesome lately is dayron sharp and I, I don't know if he's ever gonna be a starting level big but i just love his motor like he's super athletic and every time i watch him he's just making impact plays like huge energy plays he's a monster on the offensive glass 
So again, like I don't know if that ever translates to him being a starter because he, his ball skills aren't really there. But uh, he, he's a fun young big to watch, and you know I I agree with your Claxton point in that I definitely think that he is a long term building block there. And similar to Jared Allen, I've been pretty impressed with just him refining his softer skills as like a it's I guess like a trend that I'm starting to see around the league in general, where even like what we would consider to be, you know, quote unquote, traditional bigs, even like the, the screen and dive guy, the skill level of that archetype has just been elevated so much, even just in the last couple of years. And Claxton really embodies that to me because he is that screen and dive guy, but he's also a guy who, like he can catch the ball in the post and he can make a move and he's got like a nifty little hook shot that goes in quite frequently and uh it's just like he he's kind of able to create a little bit of his own offense in a way that you wouldn't expect for that player type and i think obviously like when we talk about the the offensive environment around the league and how insane it is there's any number of things that you could point to it, it's really just about like the rising skill level at every position and i feel like that's really reflected in these these big men that you wouldn't think of as being like skilled relative to the rest of the league in the past. And I think they're really building those skills out now in a way that like we just haven't seen until very recently. Yeah. And I think it's cool. It's really cool. It's also what makes uh, it super frustrating when somebody like, you know, Rudy Gobert, for instance, right. yeah. still like is unable to kind of refine those skills and, and just sort yeah. of remains the, the screen and dive guy and nothing else. That's why Joe Wolfon calls him Baguette Biombo. Um, <laughs> I don't think I ever actually have, but... If, yeah, if anyone would call him that, it'd be me. Uh, the one thing I'll add with the Nets, and I don't want to get too ageist here, but <laughs> Mikel Bridges, who is, you know, we'd say like their best young player, like this building block, is going to be 27 this year. Now, look, they've got oh, him under contract. He's trash. Forget about it. No, but okay. Well, all I'm like, I love Mikel Bridges. I think he can be really good. He might even have all-star potential. Yes. But... I will also say the way we talk about him sometimes, it's like we're talking about this like 22, 23 year old who has this really, really long runway. All I'm saying is he doesn't quite have that. Like when next season tips off, he will be a 27 year old, zero time all-star. Like the runway isn't quite as long, even even though they have him under contract. It's not like we're talking about a guy who's doing this and is a lot younger. Even Cam Johnson, who's an RFA this year, uh, like I think it's already 27, but in my mind, I picture like, oh, like this young core, like Cam Johnson and like, yeah, they're not old, but you get what I'm saying. They're not quite or nearly as young as you'd usually consider. Like the true blue chip prospect in terms of like young, young guys is Claxton, who I think is still only 23. So that might alter the timeline as well. Like when I talk about them seeming poised for a win now trade again and immediately getting back into that star trade uh, scenario, I think that does play a part in it. It's like, yeah, Bridges is his building block. He's also going to be 27 this summer. Like with, again, not having their own draft capital, there is some incentive to remain competitive. I I just think they're a team to definitely monitor this summer because if they were to go out and, and turn some of that draft capital into like an all-star caliber player and you bring that player into the mix with Bridges and Claxton and maybe Johnson coming back, and then I do think you're starting to cook with something. Yeah, I mean, Cam Johnson came into the league as a really old rookie. That was yeah, sort of exactly. part of why people were scratching their heads at the Suns, in some people's minds, overdrafting him. Um, I think it's turned out to be a really good player. But yep. yeah, to your point, they maybe don't have 
as much of that young, young talent as you might have thought for a, a rebuilding team. Yep. All right, last team we want to touch on today, the Chicago Bulls, who are up to 10th. They're in the play-in mix. Not exactly what the Bulls envisioned for their season, but definitely I think what both of us envisioned. I don't think either one of us. I think my one of my bold predictions was actually that the Bulls would miss the play-in entirely. Um, but uh, I know you you mentioned that you had wanted to talk about them, and you mentioned this the night they got the their doors blown off in Philly without James Harden. But to their credit, two nights earlier, they also beat the Sixers in Philly in what you uh, – called one of the most impressive defensive performances of the year for a team that does own a top five defense this season. They're almost a bottom five offense now. I think they're 24th. They're like bottom seventh. But what's fascinating is you look at the makeup of this team, especially pre-Beverly. Yeah. And it was like, if if you thought anything was going to be closer to top five, it was their offense. And closer to bottom five was their defense because they start DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, and Nikola Vucevic. And yet... Here they are with a top five defense and almost bottom five offense. So I definitely want to get into that with you. But uh, in terms of their recent solid play, they're in the midst of an eight and five stretch, which has included wins at Denver, in which Vucevic was great that game, plus wins versus Minnesota versus Miami and the aforementioned one in Philly. So what have you seen from the Bulls recently that has intrigued you, encouraged you, and what the hell do you make of this topsy-turvy performance this season where they seem to be excelling on the wrong end of the court I don't know I I really don't man that's why like this team's so confounding to me and I like I yeah I mentioned I thought that that game against Philly where they held Philly to 105 points in a double overtime game was one of the most impressive defensive games that I've seen this season and granted James Harden was awful that game he helped them out in that regard but they did that without Caruso who's like by far their best individual defender. So we can talk about the defense a bit. I mean, it's not like they are completely devoid of plus defenders. Like they have Caruso, who I think is unbelievable. Like maybe the best point of attack defender in the league. Uh, They have Beverly now, like you mentioned, Derek Jones Jr., Pat Williams, Javante Green, Ayo Desunmu. Like they have guys who excel at defense, but they also have a bunch of guys who you would consider defensive minuses who play a ton of rotation minutes. Like most of the guys I mentioned are bench players. Uh, Their starters are not exactly defensively inclined, but I do think a bunch of their weaker defenders have improved this season. Like Levine is one that really jumps out at me where he definitely still makes mistakes off the ball, but he's cleaned a lot of that stuff up. And I actually think on ball, he's basically just a solid on-ball defender now. Uh, Kobe White, too, I think has really improved, especially as a screen navigator. Even DeRozan, man. Like, I think this has been DeRozan's best defensive season. He makes the kind of low-man rotations, you know, with regularity in a way that I don't think he was really doing in the past. In that game against Philly, like, there were just these back-to-back possessions that jumped out at me. Like, the first one, I was like, oh, wow, that was, like, he, 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 like, tagged Embiid on the roll and then he recovered back out to the corner and then after Beverly completed the X out to the wing and whoever it was like attacked the closeout DeMar slid over made another rotation to the middle to like blow up that drive and it resulted in a Sixers turnover and then like the very next possession he's guarding Harden on a drive and he's got his hands up he takes the bump and it's really easy like Harden's a strong dude really easy to like let your arms drop in that situation which is how Harden gets to the free throw line as often as he does. 
But DeMar just kind of took the bump. You know, it didn't get knocked off his spot, kept his hands up. And then when Harden went up for the layup, he just straight up ripped him, like just pulled the ball right out of his hands and started a fast break the other way. And I, I don't know, you just don't really, like you haven't seen those types of plays or those types of defensive possessions too often from DeRozan in the past. It, it's very much like a team effort. And I think everyone is sort of like they defend well as a team. As much as like there are some weaker defenders in their rotation, they nail all the fundamentals. They're third in defensive rebound rate. They are seventh in limiting free throws. They are 10th in opponent turnover rate. So it's like the whole team is, if you want to say they're defending above their heads, then I'm not going to fight you on that. But we are 70 plus games into the season. Yep. And they're still top five. It's like, it's not a total fluke. Nope. No, I agree with you. So it's just too bad that their offense is such a mess. (laughs) Yeah. And that in general, like their overall situation, as I have said earlier this year, makes them probably the most depressing team in basketball. All right. I don't know how much more you have left to say about the East playoff picture, but I was going to cap it by asking you this. Assuming the Heat stay in the top six now, and even the Knicks who have slid, I think, end up staying top six. But Nets, Hawks, Raptors, Bulls. If you have to say two of those are making the play in, which two are they? Oh my God. What a depressing uh, question. Sorry, making making it out of the play-in. Sorry, yeah, making the playoffs out of those four. I will take the Raptors. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, man, it's, it's tough to call because it really... I'm saying Hawks, Raptors. Raptors Hawks, Raptors. Hawks. Yeah, I think, I think you got to go with the Hawks. They're almost certainly going to be at home. They have Trey Young. They're probably the most talented of all those teams at this point. Um, it could be any two of those teams, and I wouldn't be yeah. remotely surprised. But yeah, I'll go Hawks and Raptors as well. All right. You think uh, you think that puts a bow on our East playoff picture talk? I sure hope so. All right. You got a make or miss for me? I do. So I hinted at it earlier when we were talking about the Clippers and the PG injury. But I want to focus this on the Timberwolves, who... Okay. I wrote about today, Carl Anthony Towns is back, dropped 22 in 26 minutes in his return, including the game-winning free throws with three seconds yeah. left. He was he was very happy to tell everyone, I'm him, after hitting those free throws, despite fading away with Trey Young on him uh, possession earlier. Yeah, he also probably got away with hooking John Collins on that drive. Did, it was yeah, kind yeah. of a questionable foul call, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, Towns is back, and Anthony Edwards mm-hmm. is due back this weekend. And while the Wolves are getting healthy, the Clippers have gotten not healthy. The Clippers have a two-game lead on the Wolves right now. The Wolves are in seventh. The Clippers are in fifth. And in between them is the Warriors. One game back of the Clippers, one game up on Minnesota. Eight games left. The Wolves have the tiebreaker over the Clippers. And their game in Golden State on Sunday will determine whether or not they have the, the tiebreaker on the Warriors. So make or miss, Cash. When all is said and done... The fighting Minnesota Timberwolves will be a top six seed and a guaranteed playoff team in the Western Conference. Make. Let's go. I, I think the Paul George injury, I, I won't say sealed it, but almost sealed it for me. Like I think with 10 games left and Paul George most likely not playing any of them, and the Clippers just being weird, <laughs> as you mentioned, even with Kawhi being as good as he's been, they've pretty much been barely above average 
I think the Wolves have done a really admirable job staying afloat in spite of Cat missing more than half the season, Edwards uh, missing some time. The Timberwolves at this point are like the better team, and especially with Paul George out, they're the better team. And I think even if they're not quite what we hoped, and certainly you hoped they would be during the regular season when healthy, I, I still think they'll they'll get it done. And with the tiebreaker, I think they can do enough to just make up those couple games and end up at least tied with the Clippers. And that'll be enough to, to see them through and end up in that sixth spot. I think the Warriors will end up moving up to fifth. And then uh, and then I think it'll just get really fun because the Clippers with maybe without PG in a play-in situation, like, could you imagine the Clippers missing the playoffs? I have imagined it. I've, yeah, I, I think I don't think it's necessarily going to happen, but I have been kind of well. They missed them last year. For that possibility for most of this season. Yeah, they missed them last year, obviously with Kawhi not playing a single game. Yeah, but and then, PG, and then PG missed yes. their playing game last year. Yeah, exactly. But to miss it this year, when you know, even though he's been in out of the, out of the lineup, Kawhi still ended up playing more than half the season and has been awesome. And and PG again, in and out of the lineup. But you'd figure they both played enough that they should at least make the playoffs. Not necessarily so. All right, you ready for my make or miss? I think so. Okay. Well, this look of, on your face, I don't know if I am ready for this. No, no, I think it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's nothing crazy. I think you'll enjoy it. In terms of what you thought a player to be coming into a season and what he ended up being during that season, mm. Lowry Markinen is having the most shocking season of your NBA watching life. And I will give you some numbers to kind of really drive the point home for both you and our listeners. He went from essentially being, what, a solid starter, I'd say, by the end of last season, to offensive superstar in year six of his career on his third different team. Hell, Coming into the year, I don't even think he was seen as Utah's most promising former Cavalier because I think a lot of people would have said that was Colin Sexton. And yet, here he is. The biggest reason why a supposed tanker has stayed competitive all year in this crazy West, why they've punched above their weight, and why even since the trade deadline with all the guys they sent out, with Jordan Clarkson on, uh, on the sidelines with injury, and you look at what's been left of that team, even still since the deadline, the Jazz are still nearly plus three per 100 possessions when Lowry Markkanen is on the court. He is averaging 25.7 points on 51-40-87 shooting, including 59% from two-point range, 64.7% true shooting. In terms of guys who have averaged that many points on efficiency that high, Active players, we're talking Steph Curry's done it, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Nikola Jokic, and Zion Williamson, and then this year, Markinen and Joel Embiid are on track to do it. Other guys who have done it at all, Charles Barkley, Kevin McHale, and Adrian Dantley. Of the 55 players this season averaging 20-plus, he's fifth in points per shot attempt behind only Jokic, Curry, KD, and Zion. Again, just offensive superstar stuff. In terms of the best comparable for Markkanen's remarkable improvement, it's probably Victor Oladipo's Starley, 2017-2018. He entered his fifth season, playing for his third different team. Like Markkanen this year, he was included uh, in a team's outgoing trade package for a bigger name star in Paul George. But still, even Oladipo, when he made his all-NBA and actually all-defensive team that year in 2017-18, 
His scoring average that season was an improvement of 7.2 points per game year over year and above his career average through four seasons. Markkanen's scoring average of 25.7 this year is a 10.9 point per game year over year increase and 10.3 over his career average. Another comparable I was thinking of, Isaiah Thomas, little IT, when he broke out uh, in his first full season in Boston in 2015-16 after uneven stints in Sacramento and Phoenix. But even IT, you know, his scoring average didn't even increase by six points per game year to year. Maybe you're thinking like Tracy McGrady way back when he went from Toronto to Orlando and went from like good young player to perennial MVP candidate, improved his scoring by 11.4 points year over year. But even as staggering as T-Max rise was, I still think at that point in his career, great things were expected of him when he went home to Florida. Markkanen, I don't think anyone expected anything near this, especially at this point in his career. So the longest make or miss intro we've ever had, but all of which is to say, make or miss, Larry Markkanen is having the most shocking season of your NBA watching life. How am I supposed to say miss after all that? You just, you exactly. Did, you did all the work for me. Uh, yeah, I'll call it a make. I Honestly, <laughs> the Oladipo season was the only one that I was even thinking of in like recent memory that I could compare it to. And I mean... For one thing, let's hope that this season from Lowry has a little bit more staying power than that season from Victor did. But uh, yeah, I mean, you kind of laid it out. It's actually been a a, a more dramatic improvement on Markkinen's part than it was for Oladipo. So yeah, make. Good job. Thank you for laying out all the facts for me. Didn't have to do any work on that one. Easy make. All right. You want me to get to the fan shout out? Yeah, let's do it. This week's fan shout-out goes out to Matthew Vincent Ward, who reached out via Instagram DMs a few weeks ago, uh, just goes by Vince, and he's from Denver. He messaged to say he loves the show. He's been listening since 2019. He hasn't missed an episode since he started listening four years ago. He said, we were the first show outside of Denver that he can remember seeing the greatness that was Nikola Jokic, maybe before some others, and uh, I thought Wolfon and I were on the Jokic train early when not a lot of other people in national media were giving him that kind of attention. Says, loves the honest analysis. And to be honest, the long shows don't bother me at all. Well, good news, Vince. I would hope you're getting long now, sh- by now we've weeded out all the people who yeah. do mind the long shows, uh, right? Yeah. Anyway, he uh, he thanked us for everything we do, and anytime someone does that as i always do i say no thank you vince and all of our listeners for doing what you do and being such loyal listeners and supporters of our show and our content for as long as you have because you're literally the reason we're able to do this so thank you vince in denver thank you to all of our listeners who are rocking with us 85 minutes deep into this podcast and you know a million minutes or however many it's been into pound the rocks existence so the usual call out because we do want to reward you with at least a shout out it's the least we can do for your support hit us up on social media on twitter at joey underscore double y-o-u at joseph Cacharo. find me on instagram at joe underscore 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 cash or even just email us joe.wolfon at the score.com joseph.cacharo at the score.com and let us know what you love about the pod, what you think about how long you've been listening, where you listen from, all that good stuff. And I promise you, we will get you a well-deserved shout out on a future show. But until one of those future shows, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock. 